Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. After a few weeks off, I'm really excited to be back today and to be joined by Dr. Julie Serrell. Dr. Serrell is a licensed clinical psychologist and a professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Kentucky. She is also the director of their Suicide Prevention and Exposure Lab. A lot of her research has been focused on suicide exposure and bereavement, and she's done a lot of work with suicide attempt survivors as well as suicide loss survivors. On this episode today, Dr. Cyril and I talk about her extensive career as a suicide researcher. We get into her Not Six campaign, which identified the number of people affected by every suicide. We get pretty deep into the concepts of suicide exposure and suicide bereavement. And on the topic of suicide exposure, we talk about the effect of how we and the media talk about suicide, including the discussion of different suicide methods. We also talk about how suicide differs amongst different cultures. And finally, we talk about some of the recent statistics around suicide, including the rising rates of youth suicide. I found this to be a very informative episode, and I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Cyril, and I hope you enjoy it as well. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jumpstarting their business or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at CC Resourcing. US, or check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Dr. Cheryl, good afternoon. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to get to chat with you finally. It's been been a while coming. Um, a lot of folks that I've had on the show have specifically mentioned you need to talk to Julie Serrell. So <laughs> excited to chat with you today. There's um, somewhere I like to start off. And based on some of the prep we did for this episode, I think this is a good place to start the conversation. I'm curious what your take is and, and how you respond when, when someone asks you if you yourself are a survivor of suicide loss? I think that's a really good place to start. Um, for years, I didn't really know how to answer that question. I have this distinct memory of a survivor I really like a lot coming over and putting her arms around me and saying, when someone asked me, are you a survivor? Well, Dr. Serrell is a survivor-friendly researcher. But it doesn't really answer the question of whether I'm a survivor or not. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I have not lost somebody I deeply cared about to suicide before starting on this career. But what I've realized over the course of doing this work is as a researcher, as a clinician, as a suicidologist, there are so many people who have been uh, have lived experience of suicide and are attempt survivors, as well as people who are lost survivors where their loved one's story really helps fuel the work that I do. 
And so what it has done, thinking about all the people that have influenced my work, is this idea that all of us are influenced by suicide at some level. And it's not just people who are lost survivors or not. And so I started really thinking about this idea that suicide exposure, knowing someone who died by suicide is what we call exposure, is on a continuum. That instead of it being lost survivor or not lost survivor, many of us know someone that's died by suicide. Many, many of us. And it's an empirical question. We were able to start to answer that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And then of those of us that know someone that died by suicide, some of us will have kind of some degree of effect from that. And so it'll make us, when we hear about somebody we know who died by suicide, we'll have nightmares for a couple of nights, or we'll think about them a lot, or we'll get sad, but it doesn't really change our lives. We don't need to seek therapy. We don't, we might talk to people we care about about it. We might go to their funeral or memorial. And then some of us will um, be a lost survivor, either short term, it'll be a couple weeks or a couple months, talking to a therapist or going to a support group might be helpful, regardless of our relationship with them, but it doesn't necessarily alter the course of our lives. And then for some of us, that experience of a loss of somebody we care about deeply will change our lives for a very long time, or even for the rest of our lives in a negative way or in ways that promote post-traumatic growth. We end up as a different person than we might have been had we not had this loss. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic answer. Thanks. Yeah, and I, I love the concept of post-traumatic growth. That's something we talked about at length with uh, Melinda Moore when we had her on the show. And definitely see how an, an event like losing a loved one or even someone you you know of to suicide could really take you on this long journey to hopefully finding post-traumatic growth in your life. I, I do want to talk a little bit about suicide exposure. I know that's something you've um, you've focused on a lot and done some research on. And frankly, it's not a term I was really familiar with. Obviously, I'm, under, I'm familiar with the concept of it, but haven't heard it put in that way before. And so I'm wondering what are some ways that you feel we are exposed to suicide beyond just losing someone that we know directly or indirectly? What are some other uh, methods of suicide exposure that we face on the day to day? We actually came up with the term suicide exposure because we were trying to figure out a way to capture that knowing someone personally that died by suicide or being affected by the suicide of somebody we've heard of, like a celebrity. And so we couldn't come up with a better term than suicide exposure because it really captures like suicide has had some role in my life, um, but that's too many words to write every single right. time. Right. And so what we started out with after we created that model of suicide exposure in the model we thought about well who could be exposed to suicide and really it's anyone right so it, it could be a family member or someone close to us it could be a friend it could be someone you um uh, you worship with it could be someone you work with it could be somebody that's involved in a sport that you play it could be a celebrity really it could be anyone and then as you go down the different categories for bereavement Really, any of those people could cause a grief reaction or change your life forever. But it's most likely going to be close family members or close friends. I often think about uh, like college students. If your roommate died by suicide, you've spent more time with your roommate than you have with your siblings, probably. Yeah. And so their, their suicide would probably affect you more or a cousin. 
Um, and so thinking about his family or non-family doesn't make sense. And then therapists. Um, if you're if you have a clinical relationship with someone or you're a teacher or a crisis worker, chances are that you're going to have more likely to have a grief reaction than if it's another relationship. But people of all sorts of relationships can have very big reactions or couldn't even get to the point where um, they become a suicide loss survivor or they have post-traumatic growth. And what we found is that the variable that seems to really predict who's going to have the most reaction is someone's perception of how close their relationship is, regardless of the actual relationship. Uh, okay. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and pulling on that a little bit further, I know in this study that you did on suicide exposure, kind of one of the taglines that went with it was not six. And mm -hmm. it seems to be based on the notion that somehow, somewhere, at some point in time, this number six was what they came up with in terms of how many people are impacted by a suicide, which is kind of hilarious to me. Um, but I'm wondering- Yeah, anyone who's ever known anyone that died by suicide would know that it's not six, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm wondering if you could tell me the origin of that and how you work to dismantle that in the research that you did. Yeah, definitely. So Ed Schneidman, who's referred to as the father of modern suicidology, he founded American Association of Suicidology, did a lot of really seminal work in theory and in practice. Um, in his book that was written in the 70s, he said there were six victim survivors. That's the term he used, victim survivor, which is not a term, right, we would ever use now for every death by suicide. But no one ever knew where that came from, but they accepted it as fact. And there were whole campaigns based on this. And so I never got to meet Ed, but some uh, close colleagues of mine did. But he told different stories when they asked him. So he told Michelle Lynn Gust that there was a lawsuit because there were bodies that were double buried in a cemetery. And each each person was compensated, like six people for each person that was double buried was compensated. He told somebody else that there was a plane accident. And again, it was litigious. And there were six people that were compensated for everyone that died in that plane accident. Has nothing to do with the exact ex actual extent of how many people are exposed to and affected by that. And so I really set out to figure out how many of us are exposed to suicide. And then of those people that are exposed, how many people are survivor? How many people are there for everyone that dies by suicide? So we were fortunate enough to be funded by the military suicide research consortium, and we did a random digit dial study in the state of Kentucky, because that's where I am. Um, and we oversampled veterans. So essentially, it, the annoying people that call you and say, hey, can you answer my survey? Um, and if the person that answered, they were initially asked, are you a veteran? And if they weren't, is there anybody at this number who is a veteran? No, if there's anybody at this number who's male, because men are much less likely to answer the phone for surveys. And if not, like, hey, whoever you are, can you answer our survey? So that was our methodology. And we asked people, do you personally know anyone that's died by suicide? We left it a little vague personally. Different people perceive that in different ways. But what we found is about 50% of people reported yes. They knew someone personally that died by suicide. My colleague, Bill Fiegelman, who uh, is a New Yorker, a lifetime New Yorker and uh, an emeritus professor at Long Island Community College. And I work up together a lot. He's like, Kentucky isn't like the rest of the nation. You know, you're not going to find results in Kentucky. I'm like, okay, maybe not. So he got questions into the general social survey, which is a door-to-door -door survey that they do every other year. They've been doing it since the 60s. 
and he got us enough of a sample. So we had almost 2,000 people in this door-to-door survey that we asked that same question. Do you know anyone personally that died by suicide? And he called me up, and I'll never forget kind of where I was when he said, and he was like, it's 50%. It's exactly the same as you found in Kentucky. So half of us in America, and we started doing the study in other or colleagues of ours have started doing it in other countries. And routinely, it's about half of us. Some populations have higher rates of knowing somebody that died by suicide, veterans, and or not in our study, but members of the National Guard and uh, people who are um, transgender tend to know more people that have died by suicide. But overall, it seems like half of us, which for me actually felt a little, I mean, because I'm so immersed in this, it felt a little low. Like, what? It's only half of us. It should be everyone. Everyone I know knows someone that's died by suicide. Um, And so then I said, okay, well, we we know half of us know someone that's died by suicide. We know how old they were, how old they are now. And we know what the population, like what the rate of suicide is in the world. And we ask people also how many people they know that have died by suicide. And so I worked with a statistician who like thought we'd figured it out. And he was like, oh no, you violated the assumptions. You can't do this. We worked with another statistician. And finally, we just kind of calculated it. I used my phone calculator and accounting for how long, how many person years we had of people who'd been alive, how many suicides they reported they'd known, the suicide rate during those periods of person years. Um, And what we found, and really all I cared about was that it wasn't six. I knew it was going to be exponentially more than six. And so when we calculated it out, it was 134. And for me, I use the hashtag not six because it doesn't matter if it's 135 or 127 or 200. It's not six. Every death by suicide leaves behind whole classrooms and communities and congregations of people, not six. Mm. I love that. And you, you cut out for just a second there, and I just want to reiterate what that number was, which was 135. So with with the original assumption in publication being six, you found that I'm assuming on the low end, it's 135 people that are directly or indirectly impacted by every suicide death. And like we talked about a little bit before the show started, it makes me think of my dad's death. And it was it was overwhelming the number of people who came to his funeral. And I, I don't know if there were there may have been that many people there. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. But I do know there were people coming up to me that I'd never met before um, who were moved to tears and deeply emotional by by the fact that my dad had died and specifically that he had died by suicide. And I just out of out of the blur that that day was those moments really stick with me of just like wow, this is so much bigger than me, my mom, and my sister being affected by my dad dying. It's people that he worked with. It's people that he grew up with who may not even be in his life anymore. Um, the list goes on and on. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that you did there to show that this term that we use, being a survivor of suicide loss, doesn't mean you lost a deep loved one. It could be someone just within your inner circle would you would you say that's a good way to characterize it yeah definitely and i tend to think about it in terms of kind of suicide exposed and suicide bereaved so that 
because when I first started talking about this work, lost survivors who lost very close family members are like, oh no, it's very different. Their experience of knowing someone and even coming to the funeral and being sad is not my life experience. And I don't want to I don't want to downplay people's experience of being bereaved by suicide or being very close to someone that dies by suicide. But what I really wanted to do was help people understand when they have a suicide loss, it's not just a handful of people that are feeling that loss so greatly that it is it is exponentially more than they probably think about. And that half of us know someone that's died by suicide. It's not something we need to talk about in hushed tones or keep a secret because so many of us have this experience over the course of our lifetimes when somebody has that very worst kind of loss to suicide we need to be talking about it we need to be consoling people and asking questions tell me about your dad tell me about your best memories of him instead of saying oh it's a suicide we can't talk about it we're gonna walk away yeah absolutely I want to pull a little bit further on this this concept of suicide exposure and what that might look like outside of someone that we know directly in our lives. You talked about celebrities or maybe hearing of other suicides through the news or through other forms of media. I'm wondering what are some of the things that you've found, some of the impacts that being exposed to suicide in any way may have on someone? What we found is that people who report suicide exposure are more likely than those that don't to have symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and prolonged grief, and also more likely to have kind of their own suicidal ideation. What makes that worse for people is when they feel close to someone that died by suicide. So if you look at people who report they knew someone that died versus um and, and the ones that knew somebody that was close versus not close is the people who feel close, regardless of that actual relationship, they're more likely to have difficulties after the loss by suicide. But also what it means is for a lot of people hearing about other suicides in the media or in our communities brings up some of those memories or brings up some of the feelings that we had when the suicide occurred or about the suicide. It might be because the method is similar and so, like, I used to think nothing of skeletons hanging in trees around Halloween. And now I'm more sensitive to if a suicide loss survivor um, lost their loved one to hanging, that's going to be a trigger for them. Another thing that we found, we did a study of uh, people who are in therapy after their suicide. They lost somebody they cared about to suicide. And we asked, we essentially asked assess symptoms of PTSD in people, whether or not they'd seen the death. And what we found is an overwhelming amount of those folks, I don't remember if it's more than 30%, had um, had full-blown PTSD from the loss, regardless of whether or not they'd seen the death. That wow. idea of somebody you care so much about struggling in the last minutes, many people kind of create mental images regardless of whether or not they were there. And it sticks with people. And so then when you have other things that trigger it in the media, in the way things are uh, reported that might not be uh, in the most sensitive ways, or driving down your neighborhood around Halloween, that then causes people to have re-experiencing and, and harder reactions than they would otherwise. Yeah, that definitely resonates for me. Um, I, I did not uh, witness my dad's death or the aftermath, but I've had some pretty intense moments of 
kind of created reflection of seeing my dad in his final moments um, just by reliving it all the time. Well, and also probably having those whys and what ifs, trying to figure out in your own head, if only I'd done whatever it was that could have stopped him. And so exactly. you're like reliving it, reliving it, trying to figure out something that, of course, you can't figure out because you weren't there and you weren't able to stop it. Absolutely. And most people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you talk about some of the depictions in, in media, in movies, the skeletons hanging around Halloween time. Obviously, I never noticed these things before losing my dad. Um, just last year, I was in a uh, an optional training that I enrolled in at my uh, at my work, which was around recognizing the risk factors of suicide and how to get someone help who may be dealing with suicidal intensity. And this was remote training. I was on my computer at home, PowerPoint presentation. And they get to the point of talking about methods of suicide. And they actually had a little uh, a little noose clip art and a little gun clip art. This is in a training about suicide. And I had to walk away from my computer because the re-experiencing was just so intense and had to message them after like, hey, you know, this could actually be really hard for folks who have lost loved ones in that way. And people just don't understand, like they want to make those presentations more engaging with the clip part. Yeah. Um, and they don't want to like have trigger warnings, but this is an actual real like trigger trigger warning um, with with the gun um, that really it can make things harder. And we've heard that a lot. And people just don't even think about how their little use of clip art can make things much worse for people. Yeah. Or just it made me realize how much suicide violence is depicted in film and in television um, which again was not really something I ever considered, but when I see it now, that intense. Well, and now feeling, you can't not see it, right? Hundred um, percent. I had a friend that we started logging it every time we would see it, and I had a couple classes where I'd actually have my students log it. Um, and I wish we'd ever done something with that data, which I can't seem to find anymore. But I mean, you can't watch three hours of television without, or three hours of streaming something without some reference to suicide. Whether it's yeah. a joke or it's a, you know, it's a plot mechanism that they use to kind of it's and it frustrates the heck out of me. It is frustrating. It is frustrating. And like you said, I don't think it's malicious. I think it's it's people not realizing the impact that this will have on someone who has experienced that. Um, okay. and, or, and I'm wondering. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say or someone who themselves has been suicidal. And then it's only depicted as a joke or a plot twist or and not the the intense suffering that people experience after they lose someone close to them to suicide. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Thinking about the way suicide is portrayed and talked about within the 24 hour news cycle and other forms of media. I'm wondering if you had any findings specifically related or if you just have any opinions about how suicide is talked about in mainstream media. Um, what are some ways that it's talked about that are harmful? What are some things that we could do better? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I feel like in the years I've been doing this, uh, it's been getting better. Now, it's not always great. Um, so when... Uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died in the same 10 day period. Um, I think 
I think Kate Spade died first. And there was all this information about the method of suicide and the color of the method of suicide and like so much information. And I talked to reporters and said, does it matter if it was green or red or does it change anything about the message you're trying to say? You're just giving people details that aren't helpful, which then give them a better mental picture, which can hurt survivors or someone who might be suicidal themselves and selecting that method. And so when the second one died, there wasn't that much detail. It was Anthony Bourdain and it was in another country. And so their laws are different. But I was like, see our reporting, like talking to all these reporters, maybe we're getting somewhere. Um, unfortunately, probably not. But I think I talk to more reporters now than I used to that are sensitive to not talking about method, kind of not giving that story only of the anguish that people were in or their last final days or weeks, but giving a more rounded picture about the person and their lives and not focusing just on those last few um, hours or minutes of their life um, and focusing on the people left behind. Who, who are the people that care about them, that are mourning them? And the fact that for many people, it's not just family, but it's whole communities. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense to me why there would be reporting around method. I just know from my own experience, there's this morbid curiosity about suicide mm -hmm. because it's something that doesn't really make sense when you think about right. our drive as human beings. And so that whole, why'd they do it? What'd they do? What'd they how, use? How did they, how did they do want it? to complete that thought? But it doesn't serve any purpose. Like if you know what method someone used, it's like, okay, so that's the method they had available. Like, does it really tell yeah. you something about them? or what we could have done to prevent it, or, or what it's like for the people left behind. No, I think it just scratches that itch of curiosity. Right. Um, and, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. So we've talked a little bit about ways that it can be presented in media, but I'm wondering about in my own life, that's something I've been pretty open about talking about is the method that my dad utilized. Mm -hmm. Because I've found that for me, it has really helped me connect with other folks who have also had an experience of losing a loved one in that way. Um, mm -hmm. It's also helped me connect with people who have attempted suicide in that way. But, <clears throat> you know, I've talked to a lot of folks about this, and it seems to be these two camps about whether or not we should talk about method at all. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. We don't have great evidence either way about method. We do know that when very specific methods are reported in the media, there can be an uptick in those methods. Um, so Robin Williams, for example, is a good example of that. But sometimes like what you talked about, the method is integral to the story. And so should we not be talking at all? Should we just like pretend like there was no method? Um, when prevention from that method could happen or connecting with people, who might be suicidal and thinking of that method. Um, and so I think like I tend to not talk about methods, but at the same time, I also talk about means restriction. And so if someone has a firearm and they're suicidal, like I want to talk about how we're going to restrict their access to their firearm, hopefully voluntarily, you know, so things like that. So it is complicated. I just don't want to be in a position where I'm talking or a reporter I've talked to is giving people so many details, one, that it makes it easier for someone who's suicidal to feel like, oh, that's a method I could use, or two, for a lost survivor to hear those details and immediately pop back to their loved one's suicide and have that re-experiencing reaction that makes their day worse. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. 
Yeah, I think it's something that does need to be talked about delicately if it is going to be talked about at all, um, because you never know who has had an experience that you're going to be hitting home on if, if you bring up that method. And especially when it's used for entertainment, like I don't yeah. want them to go there. Like, yeah. don't show me, you know, having you slowly open the bottle of whatever. Like, I don't care. Like, that is traumatizing even to those of us who have not lost someone we were very close to to suicide. Because I know it's coming and I don't want it to go there. Yeah. I, I just watched um, the Anthony Bourdain documentary, Roadrunner, which if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. And I was really proud of the way that they approached that documentary it was maybe an hour and a half long and an hour and 15 minutes were about the man himself mm -hmm. and his journey and his experience. And it showed his pain and it answered a lot of the questions that we had about what might have been going on for him. And maybe the last 15 minutes talked about his death and they really didn't touch heavily on the suicide itself. They did not talk about method at all. They more just talked about how did it affect the people that were close to him? So I thought it was a fantastic telling, um, did a lot of justice for the, the amazing life that he lived, but also talked about some of the pain that was going on behind the scenes that none of us were mm -hmm. really aware of. Right. Well, and I also, things like that um, also really make me think about how like celebrity suicides, like his suicide launched this whole movement of, um, uh, chefs with issues and uh, like Kat Kinsman, who's now at Food and Wine, has done this whole kind of work trying to say, like, we need to change the industry and we can't lose one more chef because we have industry problems. And so it's, you know, not just those people that were close to him, but somebody like that in the food service industry, like they were thousands and thousands of people who were deeply affected by his death because they saw their journey in his journey. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the way I, I feel. And I know some of my close friends feel about Robin Williams. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what it is about that death out of all of them that just really kind of cut me to the core. Like I remember when it happened just over the next few days, just watching his movies and feeling deeply emotional. Um, I think what it is, is just the juxtaposition of how this man showed up in the world as being mm -hmm. this this comic, light, funny figure and what he was really feeling, that's really hard right. for people to swallow. Yeah, definitely. But I think it also, for many people, these celebrity suicides are a, oh, if that person is so successful and we've seen all these great images of them being so successful and happy, like if they can kill themselves, what does that mean for some poor guy like me? Like, I'm never going to make it if they can't be that successful and stick around. Yeah, I've had that thought before, and I've actually kind of turned the corner on that thought a little bit. It it makes sense to me. Um, if If someone goes through the process of becoming famous, having wealth, having access to anything they've ever wanted, and having those things, and still has that hole in their heart that won't go away... That's that's profoundly sad. And I, I can... Thomas Joyner has a book called Lonely at the Top. And I think it explains a lot of that. That, Beautiful. you know, we think of people like, oh, their lives are perfect. And in fact, no one's life is perfect. We just see a small piece of it. 
Exactly. Exactly. To kind of round out the conversation around exposure, um, when, when, when we talk about this, it makes me think of contagion, which is something mm -hmm. we've talked about briefly on other episodes. And I'm wondering from your own research or just from your own experience, how common that actually is and what that looks like. Is it just a deep fear that we have or is it something that really does happen with frequency? That's a great and, question. And maybe and explaining when, exactly what contagion is for those folks right. that might not know. So contagion is a suicide causing other suicides. And then there's also something called suicide clusters, which is suicides happening either in rapid succession. So around a specific, I don't remember the number CDC defines around a certain period of time or around a certain geographic area. Um, and Contagion and clusters are real phenomena. The question about contagion is, and a lot of the media guidelines about not talking about method and making sure that you um, have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number or just Lifeline Now 988 on materials are to decrease contagion. But what happens is sometimes we want to decrease, or people are so concerned legally or ethically to decrease contagion that we gloss over suicide as though it never happened. And so like there was a death today, but they don't say how it happened, but everybody kind of knows. Or within a school, they'll they'll say that a student died or university. Um, they'll say a student died. People could have seen it. It could have been a public act. But because of contagion or fears about contagion or litigious fears about contagion, they just say there was a student death. And people then say, oh, so you're lying to us. We all knew it was a suicide. And that in itself can increase risk because then people feel lied to and are less likely to seek out resources or help from their campus, for example. Uh, and so the question of contagion, I think we need more evidence to really figure out what causes contagion? There's been some really interesting articles, but I don't think any of them really answer the question. Um, how much can we talk about suicide without causing contagion? Because we can do lots of prevention and they don't talk about that as contagion, but we're using that word suicide. So it's, I think it's a really good question, one that we need to be aware of when we're doing the work that we do and when we're talking about suicide, but just saying suicide, we actually know, asking kids, um, or asking people, are you thinking about suicide? That never puts the idea into their head. If someone's actually suicidal and you ask them about suicide, they oftentimes feel relieved. Like, oh, someone can actually see how much pain I'm in. I'm so glad they asked. Uh, and so that question about contagion, I think, is one that we really need to figure out more. Can we talk about method in a way that doesn't cause other suicides? Can we talk about celebrity suicides in a way that doesn't cause other because what we found in some places when celebrities have died by suicide, the rate goes up, especially in vulnerable populations. But in others, it doesn't. And is it because they handled it well or the people were already getting the help they need? We don't know yet. Mm. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. That's really helpful to understand. I want to do the conversation in reverse a little bit here. I, I feel like I, I'd like to know a little bit more about the work that you're doing right now. And I'm also really curious about your trajectory and path and how you got involved in the work that you're in today. This would have been a good place to start, but I think it's, it's a good place to go now. 
So I got into this. Um, I was in graduate school and I, even before I started in graduate school, I was working on a study of uh, childhood or parental death in kids of, um, I was working on a study of kids who'd experienced the death of a parent from all different causes. And I was really interested in psychopathology and kind of how that affects kids. And in talking with my advisor at the time, she said, well, why don't you take the suicide bereaved kids in the study and make that into your master's thesis? And so those 26 kids from 15 families, uh, I studied in depth for my master's thesis. And I remember some of them had the suicide notes and I'd sit in my office at eight at night after a full day of classes and read the notes and really think about these families. And it really, it really struck me that we don't know enough about how to help people who are suicide bereaved, especially kids. The study was published really quickly in a very good journal. And kind of, I caught the bug of, you know, this is research. This is something I can do. I moved on for my dissertation because I was told by my advisor, like, eh, suicide bereavement, people don't really care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so only later did I come back when people were really interested in, like, what is it I wanted to do with my career? And they're like, well, you're a suicide researcher. And I really thought about these issues in suicide bereavement, now suicide bereavement and exposure, that no one had really done thorough work on. And so it's become a niche that really, I mean, there's enough work for many of us to do for years and years to better understand how to help people who are exposed to and bereaved by suicide, um, and also how to provide those services for people. What is it the world needs? for people who are exposed to and bereaved by suicide. Um, and so some of the work that we just wrapped up a study that was funded by the Military Suicide Research Consortium, where we looked at members of the Kentucky Army National Guard. National Guard's in a weird situation. Their suicide rate is high. Um, they're soldiers when they're there. They're civilians when they're not. And so they might not have insurance when they're not on duty. Um, but they're members of the army when they are, unless the governor's calling them out, which is a whole different thing. And so what, what is the, so the question we asked is like, how many of them knew someone either in the guard or not in the guard who'd attempted or died by suicide? What was their reaction? Was it different if it was somebody in the guard versus not? And then trying to figure out those reactions in order to help leadership. What is it that the guard can do that we could suggest that might make it easier when they lose someone to suicide, either in or out of the guard? Um, we're also looking at a number of different professions. Kind of, it, it came to my attention a couple of years ago um, with a colleague that was really interested in law enforcement suicide that there are all these professions that have exposure to suicide through the work they do. And it's not necessarily personal exposure, but it can affect them a lot. So we did a study of law enforcement officers. And what we found is over the course of their careers, officers had had like, I don't remember the exact number, but like 20 exposures to suicides, wow. like one a year. And they never got any training or kind of, they never had anything to help them deal with those. Despite like every year they have to certify on their weapons. They didn't have to certify and like, how are these suicide exposures affecting you? Um, so we've looked at mental health clinicians and crisis workers. Um, hopefully in the future, we'll be looking at kind of university professors and teachers, really thinking about what are these professions, clergy is another one um, that Melinda Moore and I have talked about a lot, where 
like you can't help but be exposed to suicide. It's not like it's a profession or it's a member of family or it's like you're in a profession where chances are good. You might lose someone to suicide. Um, and how can we help prepare people and then provide postvention, postvention kind of intervention that happens after a suicide occurs with the aim of preventing future suicides? Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. There's a study I, I think you did recently that I'm I'm curious about, which was the I know it was related to suicide and specifically the COVID-19 pandemic. Is, is that something you could talk a little bit about? Uh, maybe. <laughs> um, so, or I could so be totally couple, making it up. Yeah, too. exactly. No, there's a couple studies that I've been involved in. Um, so one that we're actually, it hasn't been published yet, but we're working on finishing it up, is at the beginning of the, of the COVID pandemic, what we heard on TV from our leaders was this is going to be like exponentially increase all deaths of despair. Like everyone's just going to kill themselves or, or whatever. Um, and it was scary for many of us. And it was a time where we worried about people's mental health, but we were hearing really good messaging from the media. Like if you're concerned about someone, reach out and talk to them. If you're concerned about yourself, here's 988. Like you can, there are people that can help you. There's a way you can get help. And that was very different than in the past. Um, and then people I care about who are suicide attempt survivors, what I was hearing from many of them was, I'm scared, this time is really hard, but you know what? I've lived through my worst days and this isn't them. Mm. Like, this is actually telling me, like, I've had my worst days and I can get through this. And so for that study, we did um, a study really um, looking at suicide attempt survivors and their experiences. And suicide attempt survivors in the beginnings of the pandemic were more likely to have been hospitalized than people who weren't suicide attempt survivors. People who have had suicide attempts are more likely to have more suicidal ideation or attempts. But they were also more likely to reach out for help and hotlines. Now, we don't know if it would be different before the pandemic, but it really gave me hope that for some people, like the experience of the pandemic wasn't just their worst days, but it, their previous experiences of being suicidal taught them that, yeah, they can get help. Even when times are really bad, people can get help. And so that's one of the studies that we did looking at COVID. Um, other work that I've been involved in with COVID and suicide, um, really, I got very frustrated at people saying that the rates were going up and schools needed to be closed or open or that all of this was related, that everyone's mental health struggles was because of COVID and being isolated. And really, um, there's a really good article that was published um, in The Atlantic that I talked to the reporter a couple times, um, but he did amazing work. Looking at youth suicide deaths during the pandemic didn't go up. What we saw was that um, teens, younger teens, especially girls in rural areas in one of the studies I was involved in, they were more likely to visit the emergency departments than they had in the past for being suicidal. But when you think about it, they weren't in school, so they couldn't talk to their teachers or guidance counselors or peers and say, hey, I'm starting to struggle. So they waited until it was getting to its worst point. Their pediatrician's offices at the beginning of the pandemic weren't open, so they couldn't go there. So things that might have been dealt with kind of at lower levels had gotten to the point that the emergency department was the only place 
that so I'm not quite sure that the rates did go way up during the pandemic or the way people talk about it. Um, and I think there's a lot more work to be done with that. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I love the way that you put it, which is that I, I think you said attempt survivors were saying, I've already survived my worst days. Like this is, this is nothing mm -hmm. like bring it on. <laughs> um, and that definitely resonates for me. Um, having dealt with my own suicidal ideation in the past, um, being quite used to isolation, um, a lot of self-inflicted isolation. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't too much of a stretch to have to do that through the pandemic. Yeah, and what we heard from a lot of people was like, see, now you know what I've been doing for the last <laughs> years. I mean, we yeah. didn't hear that universally. There were some people that it it made it much worse for them. So I don't want to, you know, put that lightly, but it was not a uniform reaction like the media was telling us that everybody we knew who has ever had mental health concerns was just going to kill themselves that day. Yeah, totally. There's something I want to pick your brain about because it's definitely piqued my curiosity lately. And I, I may be totally reaching here and there may be no connection at all, but in just the little bit of digging around that I've done, I have not seen a study that has looked into this specifically. And I'm wondering if you're aware of anything or what your thoughts may be on the connection or lack thereof. But I've noticed based on the, the experiences that I've had losing loved ones to suicide in my life as well as dealing with my own suicidal ideation and then connecting the dots on some of these higher profile celebrity suicides, I'm noticing a connection that may be there between folks who have used nicotine or tobacco in their lives who have attempted or died by suicide. And I haven't seen a study that has explored that correlation in depth. And I'm wondering if you're aware of anything or what your thoughts may be on that. Yeah, I'm not really aware of that. I mean. I know that we kind of, what I was taught was that nicotine and tobacco people use kind of to self, self-medicate yeah. um, a wide variety of kind of mental health symptoms over the, over time. But interestingly, you know, the, the number of kids that initiate tobacco use has gone down over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Um, and so I, I honestly don't know. Um, but also I think about kind of how ubiquitous tobacco use used to be in the U.S. Um, it's kind of like we know that depression, having having had depression, is kind of the number one diagnosis related to suicide. But the vast majority of people, you know, 99% of people who've ever been depressed will not die by suicide. Mm. And so like when people ask me about warning signs, like, well, depression, I'm like, yeah, but most people with depression aren't going to die by suicide. So why is that a warning sign when, you know, 25% of adults will have depression over the course of their life? Um, yeah. Let's think about things that actually we can change. Um, and so actually like suicide exposure, feeling close to someone who's attempted or died by suicide for me is more of a risk factor. Like that increases risk for people in a more systematic way. It's a very tiny bit. It doesn't like, you know, someone that's died by suicide, you feel close, you're going to kill yourself. Um, but we know that's a risk factor. And so getting people help when they've been bereaved by suicide, I think is important. Um, I mean, tobacco, like I haven't seen those correlations and I don't know what role it could play, um, but like there's all sorts of things that are bad about tobacco, right? So Sure, sure. 
Yeah, it's it's probably a reach. Um, it's just something I was noticing, and I'm like, huh, I wonder if there's ever been someone who's looked into that further. But it's also like it's part of the like image, right, of tobacco use and like the way it gets used in media. It's always like the person who's troubled will reach for a cigarette right. to think right. through their whatever, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, had a had a bad day. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. One of the studies that I, I I do know you were involved in that I'm curious to hear a little bit about. I think on this show so far, we've focused a lot on suicide through the lens of, if not American culture, really really Western culture, um, haven't really expanded that lens to look at what it might be like in the rest of the world. And and I do know you did a study specifically that looked at comparing some of the statistics between the United States and Japan, for example. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you have anything that you, you feel called to share on maybe the way that this differs or the way that it's same, uh, the same around the world. Um. I think it's it's interesting you chose that study. I can't speak in a lot of detail about that one because it's been a really long time since we did uh -huh. it. Um, but I had some colleagues that were um, really interested in really thinking about cultural differences. And for me, that's one of the things that I think is important as we're thinking about both suicide prevention and postvention is that even within the US, right, we don't have the same lens um, in all communities. But in Japan, for example, there's this whole idea um, historically of some suicides being honorable. And then what does that mean when we're thinking both about prevention and about helping people left behind? Um, and so I think there are differences. And when we think about stigma and self-stigma, we really need to think about that through a cultural lens. Um, but there's other things about suicide that we really need to think about through a cultural lens. So um, method of suicide, for example, is different depending on the culture. Um, in the U.S., we're so lucky we have guns that over half of the suicides are firearm related. But um, in China, for example, guns are almost unheard of. And so that method of suicide is not something that gets used in China. Um, in Australia, they were able to get rid of guns um, for the most part after um, a terrorist act. And so firearm suicides are far less likely in Australia than they used to be. People still have firearms if they're like farmers or ranchers or law enforcement or military, but it's much less. And so when we think about suicide prevention overall, but also thinking about um, suicide bereavement, it's really important to think about some of those little cultural differences that might really make um, a huge difference. There's some studies that I've been involved in that are using the Scandinavian data set and um, the Danish data set specifically. Um, and hopefully there's a grant that we've, that I've prepared with some colleagues that'll look at kind of relationships um, within households of people that have died by suicide and how it has an effect on people left behind. My colleague Alexandra Pittman is working on some articles um, looking at anniversaries and birthdays, kind of significant events. Do we really see a spike in suicides after those? Wouldn't it be cool? And the, scan, and the Danish data set it has all of the like inpatient hospital data, all the diagnostic data. It can link households and relationships. Um, and I was like, if we could do that in the US, and I know we have very different societies and we think about data in terms of very different things, privacy and profit and 
and all of that, but it would help us so much better to understand who needs help and how to help them um, and in ways that we're just not able to understand without these big data sets. I'm, I'm wondering if, if in countries where they maybe have less access to some lethal means that we have access to here, like far, firearms, for example, are we seeing suicides occur at the same rate? just with different methods or is it actually a lower rate no the rates the rates in um for the most part in places without firearms specifically are lower um firearms are very lethal very quickly yeah and um other methods aren't necessarily that lethal that quick there are other methods that are that lethal that you can't come back from um but it's a lot of the suicide problem in the U.S. is a firearm problem. And, you know, someone that you might want to talk to about that, I don't know if you've met Mike Anestis, but he um, is at Rutgers now and really specializes in suicide and firearms. He moved to Rutgers from Mississippi. And if you can study suicide and firearms in Mississippi, you can do it anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's great. That'd be someone good to chat with. So rates of completed suicide sound like they're lower in countries without access to firearms. How about rates of attempted suicide? Is that the same? Is that close to the same and they're just not being completed at the same rate? It's really hard to get a good sense of suicide attempts um, because most of the rates of suicide attempts we have are ones that are brought to medical attention Mm. Um, or hospitalization depends on, are you getting emergency department records or hospital records or just individual report? Um, and sometimes kind of what someone just thinks of as a suicide attempt is a suicide attempt kind of without medical complications. So someone could, you know, take an overdose, wake up the next morning, fine without any consequences they feel like they tried to end their life, but it never gets to medical attention, for example. And so that's a, it's a much harder, I think, to quantify that when it's not people coming to medical attention. Now, it's also hard to quantify deaths by suicide. Um, we've come a long way with National Violent Death Reporting System, which is actually funded through Affordable Care Act. So it used to be funded kind of through other mechanisms, and it was only a certain number of states. And a lot of the work that's been done up until very recently was looking at those 16 or 23 states. Um, but Affordable Care Act said, no, we need to understand violent deaths um, across the country and understand trends. And so I think we're going to be starting to understand a lot more. But even kind of what gets categorized as a suicide. So I live in a state with 120 counties, and coroner is a um, uh, constitutional, state constitutional issue. And so that means that every county has an elected coroner. The mm. only criteria for being a coroner in that constitution is that they are over 18 years old and they have a GED or high school diploma. So 120 different coroners, some of them might not see a suicide in five years in their county. And so when they when they see a suicide, they're going to need a lot of training because over the years, what I've heard from coroners is, oh, you know, I thought it might be a suicide, but it might be nicer to the family to tell them that it was an accident. Mm -hmm. And so we don't 
over time, we haven't gotten great reporting of that because of people's lack of knowledge that it's important to really figure it out. Um, and so I think we're starting to get better. And I think part of our increases in numbers of suicide is related to that, um, a very small part of it. But um, it becomes this huge education issue across the country to really accurately collect what are actually suicides. Um, I've had coroners say to me, well, there wasn't a note, so it couldn't have been a suicide. Where, oh, where we know <laughs> traditionally less than 20% of deaths by suicide had notes. But that's been changing. Like more and more people have some sort of final communication, text message, voicemail, social media post. We have no idea what percentage really happens now. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Uh, in my where my thought goes on that is in states with elected coroners, if they are, in your opinion at all, incentivized to maybe not report suicide or to not rule a death as a suicide. I don't think it's necessarily incentivized. I think many of them do it because they think that it's better for the family. They think that our traditional notions of insurance doesn't pay for suicides or the stigma associated with a suicide in a family by not ruling in a suicide would help that family in some way. When it, they don't think of the flip side, which is kind of thinking about prevention and, and the fact that having lost a family member to suicide kind of puts the family at higher risk and they need to be talking about it. Yeah. It's unfortunate because there's some truth in where they may be coming from, you know, like with uh, life insurance policies, many of which having suicide clauses, you know, deaths being ruled as suicide do certainly have implications on, on families but I'm definitely in agreement with you that it's still more important to be truthful about what happened and be able to provide meaningful postvention for the family after the fact. Well, and I also think that there's less and less of those kind of insurance barriers. Um, the ones that I know of, and please correct me if I'm misinformed, have kind of time limits. So within six months of the policy or three months of the policy. Um, most of them don't have like a, if you ever die by suicide, you're not going to get this. Your family's not going to get this. Yeah, I think that's correct. And Pretty I, limited I think also experience. religious, yeah, I think religious barriers also play a role. Um, they think that someone whose death is ruled a suicide isn't going to get a traditional funeral or burial or not be able to be buried and whatever. Um, and that's changed so much over the years as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I was definitely um, surprised and just very glad to see the way that that was handled for my father's funeral. I was kind of unsure how that was going to go or if we'd even mm -hmm. be able to find someone who would speak at his funeral. Right. Um, and that was not at all the experience we had. It was very, very positive experience overall. Yeah, and I think clergy, uh, through the help of uh, people like Melinda Moore, are being yeah. educated that they really, this is something that they can really do a lot of good if they do well, and they can cause a lot of harm to families and communities if they do it poorly. Absolutely. And, and pulling on that a little bit, kind of focusing on the suicide bereaved specifically, I know you've done some work there. Um, I think you also have a book related to suicide bereavement, um, Seeking Hope. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about some of the specific research that you've done for the suicide bereaved, as well as maybe some of the 
kind of helpful uh, helpful tips and tricks or ways to navigate for someone who maybe has lost a loved one to suicide? Yeah, I think the important thing for people who've lost a loved one to suicide is to know that they are not alone, that half of us know someone that's died by suicide, a third of us probably are close to someone that's died by suicide. And so even if they don't know someone who has lost a loved one to suicide, chances are they really do, and the person just hasn't talked about it. What what we've also found is that being able to talk about it, getting to a place in your life where you can talk about the cause of death and talk about the person who died by suicide is actually the healthiest way of kind of having good outcomes. It's those folks who want to conceal the cause of death or not talk about it or don't even you know want to get help because they don't even want to think about the fact that it was a suicide that over time seem to have the worst outcomes themselves. Um, what else have we found? We found that people who have lost someone to suicide, sometimes it opens a door and they're suicidal themselves, many times for the first time in their lives. And that that's a common experience and something that um, they can get help for. And I think many people feel like suicide, if they've lost a parent, especially, it, it's kind of the family, like it is their trajectory. Like this is what happens in my family. And um, that's not necessarily the case and that it's important to understand that, um, you know, there are ways of, of getting help for being suicidal and that unfortunately not most clinicians know about that. And right. most clinicians don't know how to help people who are suicide bereaved specifically. They don't think about suicide grief as different. And so if you, are feeling suicidal yourself or you've lost someone to suicide, you make the step, you get a therapist and they give you a hard time or say like, we've heard things from people in our studies, like you don't deserve to grieve. Your husband killed himself. Like, well, no, I deserve to grieve. Or, you know, you're a bad mom because your kid killed themselves. Like if your therapist is giving you messages like that, that is not the right therapist for you. And you need to find someone who can help you. And I think a lot of the times people just don't understand that like any other thing, if you don't have the right fit with your therapist, it's not going to be as helpful as if you do. Yeah. And maybe it could even be harmful in some ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think I just have one more question for you. And then I want to give you an opportunity to share anything that maybe we didn't touch on that you were hoping we would. We, we've talked a lot about some of the research that you've done and some of the other studies that are out there. I'm thinking about the uh, CDC statistics that came out maybe, what, uh, 45, 60 days ago, the suicide statistics for last year. And I'm, I'm just wondering, when it comes to statistics like that, what what scares you about either the statistics themselves or the way that they're reported? And on the flip side of that, what gives you hope about the way things are trending? Um, what scares me is that all of a sudden something I've been working on my entire career becomes an epidemic and an emergency. Mm. Um, and it's as though the public has finally been informed that there's a problem and that we need to be talking about suicide. The rates kind of, I mean, the rates for youth with the exception of kind of in the middle of the pandemic have been going up for years. Um, but I also hate the reporting that tries to link it to one thing, um, bully side, social media. Suicides are never caused by just one thing. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, there's lots of people who are bullied and never die by suicide. Fortunately, there's lots of people like I talked about before that are depressed and never die by suicide. So for everyone, it's a unique combination of factors. And when it gets distilled down to just one thing, oh, if kids didn't have their phones, then you know, no one would be killing themselves. Well, that's not, that's not the case. Yeah. And so we really need to be thinking about how we can change this upstream so that, you know, cultural is, culture is different. Mental health is easier to obtain. People are, are better at treating um, people who are suicidal or just kind of general, but also, uh, you know, the society in which we live is increasingly um, divisive politically and kind of within specific groups. And so of course, within this divisive political climate, people are going to be struggling. And so the fact that it seems surprising to so many people just really frustrates me. Mm. Very, very well said. Thank you for, thank you for going there with me. I think, I think those are all the questions that I had for today. Is there, is there anything we didn't touch on that you were hoping to, or any questions or closing thoughts that you have? Yeah, sure. So tell me more about your hopes for this podcast and where you're headed and what you want to achieve with it. Yeah, I think for me, um, there's definitely a little bit of selfish motivation here, which is there's just this big question that I carry around with me on my back all the time, which is, number one, why did my dad have to die by suicide? And number two, why are there so many people like him that have to die in the same way? Um, and number three, why is it so hard for people like myself and my family to get the help they need after that happens when it's happening so frequently? Um, so that's where a lot of my passion lies is in postvention. And that's where I really hope to see things continue to improve um, because it's still a lot like navigating in a dark room when a loved one dies by suicide. You know, there are some fantastic resources out there. But a lot of them rely on your ability to find them, which is something mm -hmm. that I, I really think needs to shift. Um, because when there, there are, are forty-five thousand suicide deaths a year in America, mm -hmm. absolutely. But yeah, you would absolutely think it's a top. It used to be a top ten cause of death. Now it's eleven. Um, but why isn't there more for people who are left behind? Exactly. Um, and why do we? not have great treatments that are developed for people? Why don't we have community resources? And why do we rely on mutual support groups, which can be great, but aren't for everyone as the primary mode of treatment for people? Absolutely. And especially when it is, I mean, I've lost a lot of people that I really care about in my life. And none of them have been anywhere close to similar to losing my dad to suicide. It's been mm -hmm. such a drastically different experience in most ways. Um, so I, I totally agree with you that with, with the rate that this is happening, the amount of people that are affected, understanding that it's not six, um, I would love to see more centralized push rather than pull type services that are available when, when this does happen. So that's kind of the first and foremost is like, I'm definitely coming from a place where I have some big questions in my own life that I know I can't answer on my own. And I know there are people who devote their lives to this work that can help me get closer and closer. Um, and also, 
You know, I think it's important that we tell the stories of the people that we lose, not just the way they died, how it happened or what it's been like since, but that we remember the person that made that choice. Because so often when someone dies by suicide, that becomes their defining characteristic. And I know Mm -hmm. for my dad, there were 54 years that led up to that moment that I don't want to be forgotten. And for every lost survivor or every suicide bereaved uh, individual that I talk to on this podcast, I want to give them to the space to tell the stories that can no longer be told by the person that they love. Mm-hmm. I think that's an amazing goal. So that's that's my hope. And I feel like I've been able to, to accomplish some of it so far. And by being able to speak with folks like yourself and, and Melinda Moore, um, I just feel like I'm always picking up new things that are immensely helpful for me in my life. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me on and spending some time talking about things I've done and things I know. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to join me. And I am uh, looking forward to hopefully catching up with you sometime soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Dr. Cheryl. Thanks. Bye-bye.